Hello everyone, um, this is an unusual episode of Happy Hour History. Um, I was originally, long before things got weird, you know, in the days of before last week, uh, I was going to put out one of my normal episodes, um, but things in the world have changed as they have been in 2020, uh, changing very rapidly, so um, everyone probably is aware, I mean, I don't know how you wouldn't be aware, uh, that there are huge race uh, protests happening in America based upon, like, general treatment of black people, Black Lives Matters, um, and also, in, in particular, police brutality um, generally, and then also the brutality that is being um, shown at these protests as well. So this is very important. It's an important cause to me. Um, and it turns out that actually... When I was doing my undergraduate dissertation uh, a year ago now, I wrote about race relations in America. Um, I was a history student, so I actually wrote about the way in uh, the aftermath of the Civil War that specific groups like uh, these ladies' memorial associations and such were able to essentially manufacture um, a collective memory that was not necessarily completely accurate, um, but it was a collective memory of the war itself. And in doing so, they rewrote the narrative of the war and sort of um, changed the way that we understood that entire event. But it also continues to propagate uh, racist beliefs and that has actively been harmful to our society, to any hope of being um, more united, and it obviously is very, very detrimental to the at-risk black population in our country. So this is very detrimental to us because um, whether there's racism that's overt or whether it's kind of covert, um, it's still within society. And I think some people don't even realize that um, the way that they've been taught history and uh, the kind of collective memories that they've been brought up on are incredibly racially charged. And so this is what I wrote my paper about. It was incredibly relevant then. It was done in the aftermath of things like the Charleston shooting, um, done in which nine black people were killed in a church, uh, which was 2015, and it was also done in the aftermath of uh, the Charlottesville race riots. Uh, it was the Unite the Right riot, I think it was called, and, uh, and that was all centered around a Confederate statue, so my paper ended up being about Confederate statues and how they promote this um, kind of terrible lost cause mythology. So uh, because of how relevant this is, of course it's still relevant now, uh, because of how relevant this is right now, but always is relevant because this is the continuing story of what it means to be black in America. Um, I did want to share this paper. So um, this episode is actually just essentially me reading this paper to you. I do apologize. The beginning part is a little bit dry. Uh, the beginning part of essentially any long academic piece of work is a lot of sort of explaining like the previous 
um, work that's been done in the field and then also like defining the terms of what you're talking about. So that's a lot of talking about like what is collective memory, um, like how do statues operate in society and then only after you get past that bit, it gets more into the specifics of the Civil War and, and the aftermath of that. So I do apologize, um, the beginning's a bit dry, but the paper itself, I think, personally, like, just, you know, having written it and caring a lot about the topic, I think there's a lot of value in there if you don't know a lot about the subject and you're trying to learn more, um, Having said that, I do not in any way want to present myself as some kind of arbiter of truth or the the person with all the answers. Of course I am not, firstly, because this was an undergraduate dissertation, so it's not like the craziest piece of writing in the history of the world. Um, also, I am not black, so I cannot speak for them. I can only speak about like the kind of objective parts of it and the ways that it can be damaging, but I can't actually explain um, what it is like to be on the other side of that and to be affected by those damaging ideas. So um, I am going to make sure that I will have um, people that you can look to and resources that you can look to to learn more because this is more like um, a taster into the topic and understanding a little bit about how this is still harmful to us today but um you know this is not where your kind of research should necessarily stop if this is something that you're really interested in um because I'm definitely not like the end-all be-all in this topic uh, and I do not want to present myself that way um having said that uh we will get into the paper and then at the end, I have some updates just because this paper was written a little over a year ago now. And as things have been progressing fairly rapidly in the last couple of days, especially with regards to statues in particular, um, I just put a couple of like extra notes at the end. But I appreciate you guys listening to this. This is kind of an unconventional episode for this show. But at the end of the day, I would rather change how this show works and talk about something important than stick to the format of the show and not be able to kind of share something that I think is really, really valuable. So with that, um, we're just going to start right in. The title of the paper was actually called Politics of Bronze, Public Confederate Memorials, and the Evolution of Collective Memory. So the introduction, chapter one. On the 9th of April, 1865, Confederate General Robert E. Lee issued a formal surrender at Appomattox to Union General Ulysses S. Grant. Over the course of the next few years, monumental changes were instated throughout the nation as the Reconstruction Era was ushered in. The slaves in the South were freed with the ratification of the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment made former slaves citizens, and the 15th gave them the right to vote. These changes were so immense to the Southern culture that the history of the region is often divided into the periods of antebellum and postbellum. These developments prompted reactionary groups to attempt to return the South to an idyllic picture of the antebellum existence. 
There was no way for Lee to know on the morning of his surrender that he would become the face of this attempt to preserve that view of history long into the future. Lee would pass away in 1870, long before the end of Reconstruction. But even decades later, he would still be remembered as the representation of the South's previous way of life. Various groups worked from the turn of the century and into the 1900s to memorialize the idea of Lee's noble defeat within the public sphere and into the mindset of the nation. Lee himself spoke against creating statues and memorials to the war, saying that it would be, quote, wisest not to keep open the sores of war, but to follow the example of those nations who endeavored to obliterate the marks of civil strife. Still, there was an immense push to create a narrative that benefited the Southern position despite their loss. The women who were the primary authors of this particular way of interpreting history were hoping to create a distinct collective memory that the region and the nation would then accept as the uncontested truth. It painted the antebellum South in the best light, minimized the horrors of slavery, and stated that the cause of the war was Northern aggression against states' rights. In creating this collective memory, they drastically impacted the 20th and 21st centuries in ways that are still presently unfolding. This podcast will seek to address how these memories were created and the reason behind their adoption into the popular mindset. A case study of two particular statues of Lee that stood in Virginia and Texas will be analyzed to better demonstrate the specifics of how these collective memories can then evolve long after their initial conception. These examples will highlight the potential problems and wide-reaching racial implications caused by an aggressive memory-making campaign. Chapter 2. Historical Context of Statues and Collective Memory Statues and memorials have been important means of both public commemoration and propaganda for time immemorial. Statues like the Augustus of Prima Porta from the Roman Empire have existed long beyond their intended era and tell historians about the time period and the people. Other statues, like the famous example of the Saddam Hussein likeness in Baghdad, are toppled, which usually coincides with the destruction of one story and the creation of a new worldview. This can sometimes be in an attempt to rigorously wipe the depicted from the historical record as a means of mass forgetting, but often it can be to show that a culture no longer glorifies the figure and what they stood for. In this way, public art becomes a conduit to broadcast what a society values and how those values can develop over time. This is precisely the case for the contentious Confederate Civil War statues in the U.S. To understand how and why this occurs, it is necessary to first recognize the ways in which statues can be used as tools and how that relates to the theories of collective memory. Statues can serve several purposes. Memorials to wars, commemorations of ideas, or, sometimes indistinguishably from the other two, as a means of propaganda. Michael Rowlands has argued that statues acting as war memorials serve as the final stage of a nation's grieving process. The creation of a memorial ideally aids remembrance, while also finding a way to escape the melancholy. As such, memorials, which are primarily meant to commemorate, and monuments, which are used as celebrations of national ability and success, can often become intertwined, as creating a triumphal memorial can establish a, quote, collective omnipotence by banishing from memory those acts of humiliation when a nation failed to protect its own young, unquote. In this instance, there is a need to rationalize the personal tragedies of innumerable war deaths to appreciate their purpose for the good of the nation. Statues turn a bad death, 
caused by the suffering of war, into the story of heroism, ultimately providing solace for those left to mourn. Conversely, though, Rollins also makes the point that the platonic repetition used to make so many memorials look the same, bronze or marble statues of significant figures posed in the classical style, can often create a delusion effect in which all statues come to look the same. This creates a sense of anonymity about the figures, despite the fact that the members of the public may interact with them frequently. While these statues have inscribed names, there's no personality to this style of memorial, which can rob the portrayed of their message and memory being spread. Kirk Savage adapts this idea slightly in his writing on Civil War statues. He argued that the North and South created nearly indistinguishably different statues of their own leaders instead of focusing on the meaning and effects of the war. Though interestingly, the figures are Delusian in look, yet not in impact, as people still have markedly different reactions to statues of Northern versus Southern generals. Monuments can also be used to artificially create and enhance a feeling of patriotism or allegiance to a party. Academics have drawn attention to the fact that, in the immediate aftermath of Lenin's death in the Soviet Union, there was a movement against creating a statue of him. It was Stalin who, in an effort to display the movement towards modernity and the strength of the Communist Party, decided to have a statue made of a fictitious scene showing Lenin delivering a speech on an automobile. In turning both Lenin and eventually Stalin into the faces of the revolution, their very likenesses became a form of propaganda. Applied to the case of postbellum America, we can understand how the faces of Southern generals would likewise come to represent something beyond themselves. The polarized view on the Confederate statues is less about the specifics of those depicted and more about what they have come to signify in the minds of the viewers. Statues can also become problematic when they no longer represent the ideals of a nation. In the case of Hungary, Many Soviet statues were taken out of the public spaces and moved into a designated and purposeful heritage space called Memento Park. Nuala Johnson argues that the separation between public spaces and heritage spaces inscribes monuments with new meaning. It sensitively sidesteps the complex decision between destroying history or allowing statues to stand in public areas despite being incompatible with modern sensibilities. The former Minister of Culture in Hungary stated that the park, quote, recreates tyranny through the eyes of art, which is of international significance and a symbol of the dignity of democracy. This setup allows for the memorials to remain so that the world can continue to study and understand the role that art and statuary played in Soviet propaganda without having them actively promoting an ideology to the people. To fully recognize why war memorials and propagandistic statues are created, collective memory must also be understood. Most historians begin their research on collective memory with the theories of Maurice Halbwachs, he emphasized the importance of the material reality on collective memory as being potentially more important than events and political upheaval with no tangible impact, even going so far as to say that, quote, effects are blunted as they filter down to those people who are closer to the stones than to men. This theory implies that changing the material aspects of a place by erecting statues and memorials can impact historical understanding of events more so than the repercussions of the event itself. Despite this, many historians distance themselves from this early model of thinking because Hallbox also argued that collective memory 
determined individual memory, but that the process did not work in reverse. Today, historians generally agree that individuals can and certainly do affect collective memory. Some even distance themselves from Halbach's phrase collective memory, choosing instead to use terms like social memory, public memory, vernacular memory, and even the eminent yet potentially loaded term myth. For the purpose of clarity, I will be using the term collective memory. In what can be considered direct opposition to the anti-individualistic theory, Wolf Kahnsteiner has argued that there are three factors in historical collective memory. Traditions that color our understanding of the past, memory makers who can alter and distort comprehension of these traditions, and the memory consumers who will accept or reject the information provided to them based on their own interest. In this way, those that have an interest in writing history in a way that is beneficial to their agenda have mediated our knowledge of the past. This theory is similar in many ways to the maxim, often ironically misattributed as a Winston Churchill quote, that history is written by the victors, though in this case, history is actually written by whoever maintains the power to control the way the story is interpreted. For the American South, their loss did not prevent them from running a history public relations campaign that would impact the next century of historical understandings. Collective memories are important as well for nation building. Benedict Anderson defined a nation as, quote, an imagined community because people identify themselves as part of a group that they will never fully and personally know. Humans imagine these communities into existence because they provide a macro form of belonging, and this belonging is predicated on some form of similarity to rally around, which can include collective memories. The American South, though not itself a nation, does display characteristics of having a regional identity that can at times supersede the national. The collective memories of any group can be potentially dangerously deployed. Barbara Mitzel has argued that collective memory can function as an ideological weapon that threatens democracy. As we idealize the past through our historical traditions, memorials, and overall collective memory, there is the implicit threat that it will become distorted or told in a biased manner. This danger is directly reflected in modern American racial issues stemming from the Civil War. Despite this, it can be equally dangerous to not remember events. Truthful recollections and self-criticism of former injustices can be viewed as a human right. Hannah Arndt, writing about totalitarianism and the Holocaust, stated that, quote, The first essential step on the road to total domination is to kill the juridical person and man, unquote. Without having the ability to address past wrongs, oppression can still occur and unbalance society as a whole. Arndt herself expressed the importance of forgiving past wrongs, but this can only be done in a healthy societal way if it is first properly addressed by the state. Applied to the situation of the former United States slaves, there is an issue wherein the mode of remembering the war and its impact writes them out of the narrative almost entirely, especially with regards to public symbols and monuments. While forgetting can be a condition for justice in instances where remembering threatens a peaceful coexistence, it can also be dangerous if it is forcibly implemented by the guilty party or their descendants as a means to continually subjugate those that have been mistreated. This means that the sense of justice that white Southerners have provided based on remembering their own loss and heroism while systemically 
forgetting the cause of the war and the immense impact that it had on Af- the African-American community has created an unbalanced understanding and public memory of the war itself. Overall, the scholarship seems to be mostly in agreement that statues, as a material means of betraying history, can impact collective memory of the past. Thus, the memory makers controlling the creation of these memorials essentially frame the chronicle in a way that most benefits their interest. The impact of how people then interpret these statues into an understanding of history can be potentially dangerous to various disadvantaged groups later on in receiving transitional justice. The Civil War statues, as this paper will argue, act as a materialized catalyst for misremembering the effects of the war and creating the lost cause narrative. Chapter 3, The Lost Cause and Creatio Memorae Immediately after the South's loss in the Civil War, there was already a budding interest in establishing ways to memorialize the dead. It was Lizzie Rutherford, a native Georgian, who helped to create a Confederate Memorial Day only a year after Lee's surrender. There was also considerable interest in creating proper grave sites for fallen Confederate soldiers, as the federal government only allowed Union soldiers to be buried in national cemeteries, as the Confederates were still being viewed as traitors. This soon blossomed into various civilian groups working to honor the dead. In an address given to the Association of the Army of Northern Virginia in 1892, ex-Confederate William Campbell Preston Breckinridge said to his audience, Quote, now what light does the last 27 years cast upon what we tried to do in the preceding four years, especially what is the value historically? What we have done in the past 27 years is a value in casting up the account upon which the verdict is to be rendered upon what we have tried to do during that war. It may be that history may decide that what we did was not only unwise, but criminal. Breckenridge recognized that there was already a question of how the Confederate cause would be remembered, though he acknowledged that it might not be favorably. For all that he spoke of the changes in the 27 years following the war, he could not have predicted the massive movement of public memory creation that would begin only a decade after giving this speech. Others were considerably less keen to allow history to remember the Confederates and the Southern cause as not only unwise, but criminal, and thus groups like the Sons of the Confederate Veterans and the United Daughters of the Confederacy, as well as various ladies' memorial associations, all began various campaigns to create, direct, and define the ways in which the events would be remembered within the public consciousness. The Lost Cause movement told the story of the war as a heroic fight against Northern aggression, with an emphasis on the fact that states' rights, rather than slavery, was the actual cause of the war. This implies that their fight to preserve their way of life was just and virtuous, even if they did ultimately lose. This was propagated in literature as soon as the war was lost. General Jubal Early wrote about the lost cause in his 1867 book, A Memoir of the Last Year of the War for Independence. And Edward Puller did similarly in his 1866 book, in which he wrote that the Confederates have, quote, either been confounded with sensational rumors or discolored by violent prejudices, unquote. Later, interest groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy would influence how the Civil War was written about in school textbooks in various states. 
One of the authors who was acceptable to the United Daughters of the Confederacy, E.M. Coulter, wrote texts for high school and college classes which would continue for decades to propagate ideas of slaves' decent treatment and the dangers they presented to society after being freed. Having now taken action for their cause in print, these interest groups then used their movement to alter, or, as they believed, fix the narrative of the war through the medium of public art. Despite the immediacy of some of the aforementioned actions to promote the lost cause, of the 1,876 various monuments and spaces dedicated to the Confederacy recorded by the Southern Poverty Law Center, the vast majority were built after the year 1900. There are two obvious spikes in the building of Confederate monuments, the first taking place between 1900 and the 1930s, with its zenith happening in 1911, and a second, smaller spike occurring from 1954 to 1968. The two spikes are notable, firstly, because of their distance from the actual events they are memorializing. The first spike does not begin until 35 years after the end of the war, and the second ends just after the centenary. And secondly, because of how they are very clearly coinciding with the racial tensions of those two periods. The first resurgence of Southern pride shown through memorials occurs alongside the establishment of the Jim Crow laws and the rise of the second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan, or the KKK. The second spike happens concurrently with the civil rights movement. The statues act as a reminder in the postbellum world that the historic Southern identity is intrinsically tied to whiteness and were thus meant to subtly keep the African-American community in their societal place during times of racial upheaval. The Southern Poverty Law Center's graph, which I will post on my social media pages because it is in the paper but you can't see it, uh, illustrates these two spikes and the relevant current affairs that they reflect. This podcast will be primarily Uh, focusing on the first spike in the early 20th century. The use of statuary and monuments to promote a sanitized or distorted view of events operates in a way that is almost exactly the opposite of damnatio memori, in which a person is condemned from memory by having their statues destroyed and their names wiped from the historical records. As a side note for this podcast, if you have listened to the episode on Hatshepsut, you remember Demnatio Memori, the idea of destroying her statue to wipe her from memory. So this is the opposite of that. Anyways, back into the paper. The UDC, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the SCV, the Sons of the Confederate Veterans, and the other LMAs or um, Ladies Monuments Associations acted as Kansteiner's memory makers. And they were able to will a history into being through the reverse process, or a creatio memori, in which they crafted and standardized how the Civil War would be understood in the South and consequently in much of the country. As a result, despite losing the war, the aftermath of reunification was largely on the South's terms. Military statues, like all other forms of propaganda, are generally erected to celebrate a victory. Sometimes they are used to honor soldiers in cases where the line between victory and loss is murky, like in the Vietnam War, but generally, if they fall into the category of a military statue, they are created specifically to glorify the product of the victory. 
The defeated South was able to bypass this entirely without ever having to fight for the right to put up these statues. It's notable that the women who largely drove this process did not even have the right to vote when it began, and thus they impacted on the entire memory of a historical event without having any genuine governmental presence. Arguably, this is made possible because the North and South had reconciled with the reunification of the nation during the Reconstruction era. In many ways, the statues put up in the early 20th century were not intended to glorify the South at the expense of the victorious North, but were rather a means of suppressing the now freed African-American populations in the South, who, despite being emancipated, were still kept at a civic disadvantage compared to white Southerners. If we ascribe to this understanding of the statue's existences, then the South is still maintaining a position as the winner, not against the North, but against the Black community and the possibility of an integrated society. Additionally, as a result of the systemic disadvantages working against them, the African-American community had reduced means to memorialize their own stories of slavery and the Civil War to help balance the narrative. The freed slaves had little historical capital and thus have been largely overlooked in the history that is incontrovertibly theirs. Chapter 4, A Comparative Case Study of Dallas, Texas, and Charlottesville, Virginia. In order to better understand the Creatio Memori of a new collective understanding of the war, this podcast will focus on the evolution of two statues of General Robert E. Lee, each being built during the latter part of the first spike in monument creation. The two statues in question were placed in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Dallas, Texas. Both statues were put in public spaces called Lee Park in their respective cities, also named for the general. The first statue, called Robert Edward Lee, was first unveiled in Charlottesville in 1924. This period was during enforced segregation created by the Jim Crow laws and the height of antagonism from the KKK. In Joe Moffat Mecklin's 1924 book on the Klan, he states that, quote, the Klan's first move in the South was to capitalize the white sphere of the Negro owing to the Negro's new ambitions created by his fight for democracy and the increased demands for his labor, unquote. Henry Fry, who joined and then worked to expose the KKK from within, noted the severe punishments given out to African Americans who associated themselves with white women and threats were issued to white people who even spoke about racial equality. This unequal power structure and societal separation is reflected in the Lee statue. Interestingly, the statue was not commissioned by a ladies' memorial association or similar group, but by one man, Paul Goodlow McIntyre. He was said to have wanted to beautify Charlottesville, giving a sizable amount of his fortune to the creation of parks, including Lee Park, and the creation of public art. Despite this, historians today recognize the lost cause mythology that underpins his good deeds. The parks and schools he created were segregated. He worked to promote the glories of the South, but within this, his philanthropy was also, quote, enhancing the segregation of public spaces, and celebrating the defense of slavery, unquote. He was both influenced by and further propagating the collective memory of the lost cause. When covering the story of the unveiling, the Daily Press spoke glowingly of Lee, comparing him favorably even to George Washington, saying, quote, Sympathetic and curious friends from other lands and states sometimes wonder why Virginia and the South give to General Lee a sort of intensity of love that they do not give to Washington. 
Washington is simply a great illuminating allegory of unselfishness, self-control, and character. Lee is a type and an embodiment of the best there is in all the sincere and romantic history of the whole state. Its triumphs, its defeats, its joys, its sufferings, its rebirths, its pride, its patience, center in him. This quote is notable in hindsight because it seems to be very clearly creating a distinction where there is none. Both figures have come to represent the ideals of their times and causes more so than the actual human figures that they once were. The authors of the article even knowingly stated that Lee is the embodiment of a romanticized history. This romanticization of the past is a defining part of the creation of the lost cause collective memory, sanitizing it of all its unpleasant realities. Rather than being about Lee and his actions specifically, he becomes the representation of the entire Confederate movement. This opens the statues and their meanings up to modern criticism, especially from African-American groups who feel that the glorification of these statues and what they represent is a direct statement against their place in society. While there has always generally been some controversy over these statues being in place, the topic became heated in the aftermath of the Charleston Church Massacre in 2015, in which white supremacist and Confederate supporter Dylan Roof killed nine people worshipping an Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Before the mass murder took place, Roof had visited former plantations and a Confederate museum, which only played into his views of the inferiority of African Americans. As a result, there was a nationwide outcry to begin removing the statues and tributes to the Confederate leaders. Within two years, the Charlottesville City Council decided in a 3-2 vote to remove the Lee statue. Councillor Bob Fenwick, the deciding vote, seemed to know the upheaval this would cause and publicly stated, quote, If you think death threats will stop me, you must not know my background. Very quickly, this erupted into a violent protest dubbed the Unite the Right rally, which included self-proclaimed members of the alt-right, neo-Confederates, neo-Nazis, members of the KKK, and white supremacists. While this march was not targeted only at the African-American populations, evidenced by protesters carrying symbols like swastikas, which are anti-Jewish, and crusader crosses, which are anti-Muslim, among the Confederate flags and other images, uh, the impetus was clearly the perceived attack on the white Confederate history and identity. During the rally, activist Heather Heyer was killed while acting as a counter-demonstrator. From the time of this event in 2017 until the publishing of this paper in April of 2019, the statue has been granted a stay of reprieve and still stands in Charlottesville. As an aside uh, for this specific podcast, as of the recording of it on uh, June 4th, uh, early in the morning on June 4th, 2020, that statue still stands. The second contentious Lee statue that stood in Dallas, Texas, came to a remarkably different end, though the questions that it poses are equally as problematic. Texas had suffered many of the worst attacks by the KKK in the early 20th century, including instances where members were recorded carrying, quote, a fiery cross and several banners bearing these words, white supremacy, Dallas must be clean. The guilty must pay. Unquote. There are also numerous cases of lynchings in Dallas during this time. It is in this climate that the statue, called Robert E. Lee, was created by artist Alexander Feminster Proctor. 
Proctor was commissioned by a ladies' memorial association, though there is some confusion as to which group in particular. Proctor's autobiography credits this to the Southern Women's Memorial Association, but other sources, including the plaque on the statue itself, list the benefactor as the Dallas Southern Memorial Association. The commission asked for General Lee on his horse next to a young soldier who would represent Lee's many followers looking to him for guidance. Proctor outright expressed his admiration for Lee, stating that, quote, the more I reviewed his character and his campaigns, the more I accepted the Southern view that Lee himself had not been defeated, and I tried to create a statue showing the hero marching on. The statue's dedication ceremony occurred on the 12th of June, 1936, and sitting President Franklin Delano Roosevelt unveiled it. According to Proctor, FDR said magnificent when he saw the statue. Roosevelt later said that the entire country recognized Lee as, quote, one of the greatest American Christians, as recorded by the Dallas News. While the statue itself was funded by a Ladies Memorial Association, the base was actually built by the Works Progress Administration, which was part of Roosevelt's plan to put people back to work during the Great Depression. This is indicated on the dedication plaque on the base of the statue. The Works Progress Administration, or the WPA, was actually doing something quite unconventional, involving the government in the creation of a Confederate statue. Up to this point, much of the fundraising and designs for the statues came directly from people involved with the Ladies' Memorial Associations. The federal and state governments were often largely uninvolved. The WPA's presence seems to be an anomaly, as they do not appear to have been involved in the creation of statues elsewhere, though their involvement here and the president's attendance indicate that the federal government no longer saw the Confederates as rebel traitors in the way that they had immediately following the war, when they felt that uh, Confederates were not to be buried in national cemeteries. The day of the unveiling was jovial. A concert was performed. The crowd converged on the president's car with excitement over his presence at the ceremony. The speakers continued to press the image of the noble Lee, who they said fought with his home state against his better judgment and accepted defeat when his soldiers were clearly unfit to continue fighting for long. The Dallas News reported on the event and made no mention at all of slavery, the African-American community, or the reason why the South and consequently Lee were fighting. Since then, the statue has become considerably more contentious. A month after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, the Dallas City Council voted 13 to 1 to remove the statue in Lee Park. Despite an attempt to stop the proceedings with a restraining order filed by a member of the Sons of the Confederate Veterans, the statue was removed on the 14th of September 2017 without violence. Prior to the removal of the statue, President of the Dallas Chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, Arthur Fleming said that, quote, if we are going to move forward in America as Americans, we have to let go of those symbols. The issue that has arisen with the removal of the statue is what will happen to it next. Fleming finished his statement by saying that the South could keep its symbols and statues as heritage provided that they were in museums. Many others have had similar ideas and the concept has been successful in other places like the aforementioned situation in Hungary. This approach stops the destruction of history, a main talking point by those who call for the statues to be preserved, while also contextualizing them appropriately. 
While this was considered, the statue still exists in purgatory two years after the removal from the public sphere. The issue of what is to be done with Confederate art has not stopped Dallas from continuing its mission, though, as they have more recently decided to remove a 65-foot obelisk erected by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which stood in the city center. Chapter 5. Continuing Controversy As mentioned previously, Lee was against the idea of physically memorializing the war as he felt it would hinder any attempt at peace. This certainly seems to be true in the modern world. The prevailing issue with these statues is that now existing outside of both the time period they depict and the time periods they were erected, which were both marred with white supremacy, they now stand in a country divided. As shown by the case studies of Dallas and Charlottesville, there is a huge and growing population who feel that these statues do not represent modern American values. The Charleston Church Massacre has had a remarkable impact on generating public awareness on both sides of the debate. In many ways, the statues have escaped the Delusian repetition curse due largely to their newfound infamy. There is still the argument that these statues and monuments are part of the history of the nation, which bolsters those who support their continued placement in public. Despite this, though, there is clear evidence that these statues are not just relics of the past. A report by the Smithsonian and the Investigative Fund at the Nation Institute has found that American taxpayers have given a minimum of $40 million over the last decade to various Confederate monuments, which includes statues along with homes, parks, museums, libraries, and cemeteries. Additionally, 4% of the currently standing statues were built or rededicated within the last 20 years and are therefore continuing to expand the propaganda into the 21st century. While efforts to remove these statues have nearly always existed, groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center and the NAACP have increased their efforts in the wake of Charleston and Charlottesville to make the public more aware of the skewed history that these statues symbolize. Since 2015, the Southern Poverty Law Center has recorded the removal of 114 statues, including the Dallas Memorial. In an article written by the current president and CEO of the NAACP, Derek Johnson asks why the U.S. President Donald Trump and his cabinet would not condemn those who defended the statues that they say, quote, sought to devalue, diminish, and profit off of the suffering of black citizens. He ends the statement by saying that the NAACP will continue to fight what he considers to be paradigms of hate. Despite these efforts, the continuing existence of these statues can be troubling for people of color. As evidenced by the actions of Roof and the Unite the Right rally, these monuments act as a rallying point and means of bolstering hate against minority groups. This impacts the African-American community in obvious ways, but can also allow for other forms of racism to fester. As previously discussed regarding the research done by Mitzel and Arndt, collective memories which are incorrectly remembered, such as this example, can be damaging to democracy and the well-being of the wronged parties. These theories imply that there can be no resolution to the issues caused by decades of slavery and the Civil War because there has never truly been any national understanding of the wrongdoings that occurred. In the years following the war, work has been done to rebuild the South but there was little done to help the newly emancipated slaves. It was not until 2008 that the Democratic Party-led House of Representatives formally apologized for both slavery and the Jim Crow laws. 
Despite this, there were no actions taken regarding the statues that physically embody the racial inequality in both of the aforementioned time periods. Without the nation addressing, in totality, the wrongs committed throughout its history against the African-American community, theories like Arndt's would indicate that there can be no true acceptance and rapprochement between the people and their state. Chapter 6, Conclusion The impact that the Ladies' Memorial Associations and groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy have had on the American perception of history is immense. They were committed to creating public art which portrayed the failed Confederate cause in a way that supported their future goals of disenfranchising the African-American community, and thus these interest groups were able to create and define the way that an incredibly important and contentious historical event would be remembered, despite having lost the war. Combined with actions taken to dominate the narrative in textbooks and other media, they largely shaped the way that Americans, particularly though not exclusively in the South, recall these events, often to the detriment of any peaceful resolution to inequalities that persist today. Memory consumers have been exposed to this one-sided telling of history for decades. The effects of this are long-reaching. Many of the modern race-based issues within the nation can be traced in some way to the existence of these memorials or the collective memory that they continue to perpetuate. The idyllic view of the antebellum South and the dangers presented post-emancipation are an unfortunate platform that can easily breed hate, as evidenced by cases like Charleston and Charlottesville. Despite this, there's no clear solution on how to rewrite the narrative now that it has become so entrenched in the public consciousness. As seen with the failed case of statue removal in Charlottesville and the indecision caused by the removal of the Dallas statue, there seems to be no easy answer regarding how to handle these manifestations of memory making. What is clear, though, is that until this memory is properly addressed on the national level, there is diminished hope that any significant progress can be made regarding the lingering impacts of slavery, segregation, and white supremacy. And that is uh, the end of the paper as I wrote it and uh, submitted it as a dissertation. Um, I have an extensive list of references, both primary and secondary sources. So if anyone has questions about uh, what they listened to or is interested in learning more from people with much more authority than I have, uh, please let me know. Reach out. I am happy to talk more. Um, I actually think I will list um, the some of the more useful references in um, the notes, the show notes. Um, in the show notes as well, I am also going to put links for where you can go and donate to various Black Lives Matter causes because that is um, like the most important thing we can be doing right now, obviously, besides educating ourselves and, and trying to um, better ourselves for our community and for the betterment of society. Um, so the links for uh, where you can donate money and the references, the, the kind of most prevalent references in this paper, I don't think I'll list all of them because there's a lot, um, but those will all be in the show notes. Um, I did want to just address a couple of extra things, uh, kind of some updates, because obviously this was written a year ago, and in some cases, like obvious cases, things have gotten much worse, um, because as the paper indicates um, nothing ha can get better until we address the wrongdoings of our nation. Um, and certainly things have not gotten better. They have just become more overt and they're more obvious to us now because of, of the protests. Um, 
But in some ways, things have actually already seen improvement. Uh, if you know, if you can look at it that way, and kind of the silver lining of it all, um, because several new several statues actually have since been pulled down. Uh, so in the last couple of days, a statue in Birmingham, Alabama, was pulled down. It was a statue in Lynn Park. And the protesters were rallying around it. They wanted to pull it down. They were actually trying to do it themselves. And the mayor ended up coming out and saying, give me 24 hours and I'll figure it out. It turns out that Birmingham had actually already tried to remove that statue and Alabama forced them to stop. Um, and so within 24 hours, they were actually able to pull it down. So some people would like to see it destroyed. I have a feeling it will probably either end up in statue purgatory the same way that the Dallas statue has, or eventually it might end up in a museum. There was also a statue in Richmond, Virginia of Lee, which I believe has come down or is coming down. Um, as far as I know, it has already come down. Um, and that is very exciting as well. It's not the statue referenced uh, in this paper that I wrote, that was um, Charlottesville, and this is Richmond. Um, I'm still personally campaigning to pull down the Charlottesville one because I want that one gone. Uh, just, you know, I mean, I want all of them gone, but that one I have like a personal vendetta against at this point. Um, but so it's exciting that that one in Alexandria is no more. Um, and there has been a lot of vandalism in general. So statues that uh, have not been pulled down or perhaps will not be pulled down because of the government. Uh, there's been people who have been like spray painting them. And I think that's a completely legitimate form of protest against statues that, uh, if this paper did not make clear, are detrimental to our society, uh, to race relations, and to any form of healing for anyone. So uh, I think that I'm not at all against people <laughs> trying to either destroy these statues or to um spray paint them or vandalize them in any capacity um that's you know there's debate on that but that's where i stand on that debate uh the united daughters of the confederacy they have their um headquarters in virginia and it was lit on fire um i think that the building was saved but uh had extensive damages as far as i know nobody was hurt which means that I personally am not against that, uh, as long as, as long as no one's injured, um, you know, burning a building that is representative of so much hate and that continues to propagate hateful stereotypes and a lost cause myth that is actively harmful to an entire subgroup of our country is, like, I just, I, I don't see why you can't fight against their memory creation with, uh, a little bit of your own, a little bit of your own tactics. Um, so that's happened as well. So uh, there's been a lot that has happened in the last couple of days alone. I appreciate everyone who has stayed and listened to this, even though it is so different from the way the podcast normally is. Um, I think so many of us have a lot to learn and a lot to kind of, uh, to fix in ourselves or to see as maybe flawed ways of thinking. Um, so hopefully this has done a little bit to help you see why those statues are so actively harmful. Again, like I said, I don't want this to come across in any way that I 
uh, am like the arbiter of truth on Confederate statues, you should always, always be listening to the voices of the black activists who are speaking out and explaining why these things are not okay. Um, but, you know, this was just meant to be a paper that explained the kind of historical context and the danger that these statues present. Uh, so if you are looking for more people to kind of, uh, look into who have, are, are making waves in this or, um, more historians to look into as well. I'm happy to try to help you guys out in that because this is something that I think is very, very important. It's a cause near and dear to my heart. Obviously, I spent a lot of time uh, putting that paper together, so it's something that is very, very important to me, but I recognize that it is important to me in a way that it is different from how it is important to Black people because it's important to me in a sort of distanced way. Uh, because I don't feel actively uh, the kind of hate that they experience. So um, it is always best to be looking for their voices in all of this as well. Um, so yes, thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate uh, you guys sticking with this, even though it was so different. Um, please consider donating to um, any of the bail funds or uh, the ACLU or any of the kind of activist groups that are raising money. Black Lives Matter is raising money, certainly. Um, there are a lot of things that we can do, even if we're not out protesting, that are going to make hopefully tangible impacts on our society and that we will be able to move forward in some capacity as hopefully a better, more enlightened uh, society. So... Hopefully. Um, so yes, I, I think if there are going to be more episodes in the coming weeks, I'm not really sure what is going to happen. Um, obviously, we don't know what is going to be happening in the future, just generally with this kind of protesting and police brutality. Um, but for as long as this continues, I really can't fathom trying to be cavalier about this and go back to like funny silly lighthearted, ridiculous history because it's just not who I am as a person in terms of like my core beliefs and my own personal activism so I haven't sorted out exactly what future episodes might look like especially not knowing the timeline of what this is going to like how long this will last um, but I do want to keep moving forward with highlighting black history, um, talking about injustices or people that maybe don't get covered as often. Um, and I think that's the way that I can be sort of useful at this time. Um, I, again, we, since we don't know exactly what's happening or how long any of this will go on and what, like, anything looks like in a world where this at some point ends because we don't know what the end product will be. Um, I don't obviously know like how long it'll take, but hopefully at some point it, we will get back to a regular world and I'll get back to like a regular podcast where we're making jokes and being silly and stupid. Um, and I appreciate everyone who stays with me in the meantime and is willing to kind of do something a little bit different and um, roll with the punches on what's going on in the world. Um, if you are not on board for what this is going to be for a little bit, um, you have my blessing to unfollow this podcast because this is the reality of what it's going to be and I'm 
I'm not apologetic about making this change. So you are more than welcome to unfollow and I will not be offended. But yeah, so if you guys are going to stick with this, I really appreciate it. And uh, whenever I figure out what the next episode will be, I will try to get something out. Um, my main focus right now is going to be on like being a good ally and watching what's happening and being, I guess, like a witness to what is going on and, and the injustices that people are suffering. Um, so I'm going to be very active on Twitter. I've been really active on Twitter already, so my followers are probably exhausted by seeing like all the stuff that I've been retweeting and, and trying to boost the voices of the, the protesters. Um, but if you are interested in seeing what's happening and maybe you don't have um you maybe you don't know where to start or where to look uh, my twitter is quite active and it's going to continue to be very active boosting uh, voices from the people who are actively at the protests what is happening to them uh the police brutality that they are facing so you can find my twitter um it's at happy history pod i do have my other social media but to be honest like i'm not going to be as active on there in the immediate future just because i'm trying to focus a lot of my energy on um what is happening so to be honest very little of my attention is actually going to be on this podcast promoting this podcast etc etc um because this at the end of the day this is not about me in any capacity so if you are looking for more information though um definitely i'll be boosting the voices there and that'll give you some indication of what is happening because i know not all of it's making it to like major news stations but otherwise yeah thanks for listening and at some point in the future i will catch you guys again